Welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week I'm turning my attention to episode four of Hulu's Castle Rock, which I have a lot of thoughts on this particular episode and I can't wait to get into it. But before I do that, I want to read some listener email because as you know, guys, I can't do this without you. So first up, we have Nate who writes Constant Reader. Let me preface this by saying as much as I spout my love of everything King, I have only read a handful of his works. Finding and listening to your podcast has inspired me to fix that. Have you reviewed Heart-Shaped Box? It's the one Joe Hill book that I own. So just to to answer that question, I haven't reviewed uh, Heart-Shaped Box yet. Um, That's a big blind spot uh, for me. I mean, it's not a blind spot in terms of me having read it. I have. Um, I just need to actually uh, get around to reviewing it for the purposes of this podcast. So on to my thoughts, Nate writes. It. I have read the book and listened to the 44-hour audiobook. Pennywise lives. I love the way it's written, how he kept track of the narrative. Had to be something out of this world. The only part was the sewer scene. I didn't think it was necessary and was very uncomfortable. With that said, I could still understand what it meant within the narrative. So, Nate, I agree that it is uncomfortable. Um, And, of course, my thoughts are uh, I have spoken my thoughts about the, the sewer scene on multiple occasions on this podcast. Um, and then he writes, The Dark Tower books. As you were going through two and three, I was really getting a Tolkien vibe from it. It's obvious that Roland is the Aragorn character, the loner king. The Cotet is the fellowship because you can't vanquish your foe alone, something Tolkien knew, and that you mention a lot about King is the importance of friendship. I'm a huge Tolkien fan, probably the only author I like more than King, so I can easily see the correlations. I actually spent the better part of 17 years studying all that I could on Tolkien and his influences. There are more things I caught as you went through the books, but I'm drawing a blank at the moment. I'll probably send another email when I remember them. Please do. The Dark Tower movie. I just watched it yesterday. I've only read The Gunslinger, but as I mentioned earlier, I intend to remedy that. Got some money on Father's Day. So my thoughts on the movie are based pretty much on what you have said on summaries. As a whole, I really enjoyed the movie as its own story. It felt a little rushed. I love... Uh, the Roland that Idris Elba portrayed and the gunplay on par with John Rick, John Wick. Now that's a dual I'd watch. So I think that if you see the movie just on its own thing, it's quite good. The one complaint that, from that perspective, I have to say is that they, spoiler alert for the movie, uh, they killed Walter too easy. He's supposed to be really powerful and he's killed by a little trick. Stupid. I would um, actually apply that criticism to the entire movie, personally, but that's, that's just me. Random thoughts. I have very few friends due to the fact that my idea of friendship is based on characters of my favorite stories. Holmes and Watson, Harry and Ron, Frodo and Sam, and lastly, the Losers Club. Friends willing to give uh, their all to their friends. Maybe I just wish for friends like that. Maybe my standard is set too high. Maybe I'm the issue. Um, oh, so Nate, I mean, don't, don't blame yourself, man. I mean, that's not, it's not bad to want to have long-lasting, strong friendships at all. Um, and, you know, don't, don't, let yourself, don't get yourself down on this because you have an entire quartet. Um, we were all your losers club. All right. So just don't, don't let it sweat. And, uh, you know, if, you know, worst case scenario is you, you have the books and I've long been able to just dive into books when I'm feeling down. Then he writes next, do you have any tips for someone who loves horror and wants to try writing on their own? I know that you have written a few, um, I love good stories and would love to pay my homage to the people that have given me that. Uh, I think that's it for this one. Uh, you have a great podcast. Keep up the good work. Long days and pleasant nights, Nate. Um, P.S. You aren't Aaron Mank from Lore, are you? Your voice, LOL. Um, uh, so, no, I'm not uh, Aaron Mank uh, from Lore. I haven't listened to Lore. It's one of those uh, podcasts that I've actually meant to get around to listening to, but I, I never got around. So, no, I'm sorry. That's not me. Um, Regarding writing horror, 
what any author would tell you, and this is not my advice because I can't, yeah, I've published a couple. I've been fortunate enough to publish a couple, but I, I, I can't really consider myself any sort of author. Um, do the thing that I am not doing, um, which is write, <laughs> just write. I mean, you can't get better at something until you actually do it. Um, and it, it's stupid to say that it's hard. It is. It is. It's just, for me, self-doubt uh, gets in the way every single time. And it's much easier for me to share my thoughts on the creative work of other people than it is to actually uh, sit down and create my own creative work. Um, so I, I probably should step away from the podcasts entirely and just focus on my own stuff. But um, it, podcasting is good distraction. <laughs> for that. Um, and I enjoy doing it. And, um, yeah, like I said, the self-doubt gets in the way. So my suggestions from someone that isn't really doing it is to do what I'm not doing, which is write um, every day, um, and push through the self-doubt, you know, at the, the very, the, the worst thing is if you set a goal for yourself to write every day, even if you hate what you're writing, you're still doing it which is important because you can't revise something unless you actually write something. Um, getting something down uh, would be um, step number one. For a deeper thought and um, some really concrete and philosophical uh, examinations on how to write, you should read On Writing by Stephen King. Um, he'll be able to get you in the right headspace to want to write. Um, he... And it, it's just, it's, it's a really, really good book, um, you know, and even if you're not interested in writing, it's, it's a really good insight into the, the working mind and the heart of someone that was put on this, this world to, to do this, and you see the workmanship that goes into it. And then he continues, I've been thinking about getting an all things serve the beam tattoo, and I say, do it. I think that you should. That's a good idea. Um, okay. Um, and then we have another Nathan who writes, hi, I just discovered your excellent podcast this week and I've started diving into some of the episodes. I've only in the last year really started to dive into Stephen King and so far I'm really loving his stuff. As of now, I uh, have just a few books under the belt, including in order of having read The Shining, Carrie, Skeleton Crew, Dark Tower, One Through Four, and Wind Through the Keyhole. Um, and everything's eventual. I have plans to finish The Dark Tower with three more to go. Just a couple of thoughts I had while listening to your podcast, and maybe you could help me out some. In The Shining, there is a famously described uh, manta shape leaving the overlook as it's burning. This sounded a lot like the shape of the invisible demon that appears in The Dark Tower 3, The Wastelands, when, spoiler alert, Roland and friends are trying to open up the doorway to allow Jake to come through. I can't be the only one to notice this yet. I've never seen it when looking at the Dark Tower connections between The Shining and The Dark Tower 3. Any thoughts on this? It could just be King associates evil entities with having a manta shape, but I feel like they're connected. Random thought related to the manta shape. There was a large dark manta shape boss in a haunted hotel location of Super Mario Sunshine for the GameCube. This can't be a coincidence, and I'm guessing the developers did this as a tribute to the novel. Possibly, perhaps, um, regarding the, the Dark Tower 3 and the Shining connection, um, I, I want to say, and I can't remember off the top of my head, um, I think that he has used this description in other works as well. Um, he has certainly written of evil sort of um, trying to escape into the sky only to be shred um, by, uh, the, by nature, really, um, and, and the, the natural order of the world. But that particular description of the manta ray, I believe that he has done it in other... I don't know if that's just a trope or if he is making a connection. My bet it is just it's, it's a particular image that he likes and he uses that trope. I don't know if we're supposed to draw a line from plot to plot from one book to the next, but it's a, it's a good um, observation, certainly. Two things I got related to Skeleton Crew. For one, did anyone else feel a potential really dark ending to word processor of the gods when the main character is typing the line, I live alone? I was almost expecting a Twilight Zone-like ending where before he retypes, where he discovers he is the only person living on the planet and then the word processor breaks. Glad it didn't end that way, but after reading The Jaunt and The Raft, I had been expecting it to take a really dark twist. So kudos to King for not being a one-trick pony. Also, fun fact related to the monkey. While you had mentioned that the monkey had nothing to do with Monkey Shines, I did want to point out that another movie stole the idea from King called The Devil's Gift. 
This film is later rebundled with another film, which then became known as Merlin's Shop of Mystical Wonders. Uh, this can be watched as a Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode. Odd connection, but it came to mind when reading as I had seen the episode prior to reading the short story and thought that they had a lot in common. After a quick Google, that provided to be the case. Um, keep up the good work, and I look forward to checking out future episodes. On a side note, any major spoilers for the later Dark Tower series 5 through 7 in your episodes on 1 through 4? I'm tempted to listen to them, but I'm really trying to avoid any spoilers for obvious reasons. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, I... If I were you, I would probably, I would, I don't know. I, I guess you could listen at your own risk because you'll definitely get, um, you'll get some deep thoughts to help you get through the, uh, the last, the last books. Um, I'm sure the bonus episodes attached to each one of those novels, uh, that I did have spoilers, um, so, I mean, the safest bet is to hold off on everything and then listen to all of the episodes, one after the other. Um, and that way, your reading experience is yours alone, and it's not shaded by my um, analysis or my opinions. So, yeah, actually, you know, reading them on your own and going back and then listening to all of the, the podcasts, that's, that's a really good way of doing it, I would, I would think. And then Martin writes, Dear Constant Podcaster, first of all, I would like to say thank you for producing such a wonderful content to the free enjoyment of all your listeners. It's truly appreciated. Well, thank you. Um, I have been listening for about a year now and have been meaning to write in. I'm from Copenhagen, Denmark, and first read Stephen King in the summer of 93 as a 12-year-old boy. I was already fascinated by horror, mostly from the local video store, and all of those King VHS cassettes got me intrigued, so I randomly picked up Cujo and read it. After that followed a period of five to eight years where I basically read as many of the King classics I could, um, culminating with The Dark Tower, up to um, WAG, which was their Wizarding Glass, sorry, which was there uh, where we were at the time. I find myself listening to your casts, thinking that on some other level of the tower, I would be doing something very similar. Alas, my love for King, while never dying, receded. It was not until the last few years that I rediscovered it, rereading it in anticipation of the film and discovering your podcast. May you have long days and pleasant nights, Martin. Martin, thank you for writing in. Um, and yeah, there was a period where I kind of fell out of King. Um, my fandom definitely ebbed a lot. Uh, this was following the Dark Tower, <clears throat> really. And then like I kind of I pulled back, and then I wound up getting back in, and certainly the... Uh, the podcast and, and reviewing each of the books deeply. It made me appreciate some books that I did not not necessarily care for the first time around, like Dumaki. I can't stop thinking about Dumaki. That was a book that I, I really did not like the first time around. Under the Dome, I had enjoyed when I first read it, but I thought it was kind of bloated. But I think it's an important novel that speaks to the dangers of of humanity, uh, eleven twenty two sixty three. I got a much greater appreciation for it the second time around. Uh, there are a lot of books that, and then even Christine, a, a novel that I had liked when I first read it, um, rereading it again and really looking at what it was saying. That one really touched me. That was a good episode. I liked I liked doing that episode. So Martin, thank you for writing in, and then for some iTunes reviews, guys. Um, I only have one, but I did. I wanted to share it, and it's quick. And if you have any you know, free time on your hands, please write in uh, and leave a review. It really helps me out. A Disney Weirdo writes, a great Stephen King podcast. This is such a fun, entertaining podcast. A must listen to for any King fan. Okay, guys, I have a lot of thoughts on Castle Rock episode four. Um, but before I get to those thoughts, I, I just want to set the stage with a recap. And I'm going to read a recap from uh, Decider, Decider.com um, from Zach Dion who writes um, in his recap, everyone in the box, Castle Rock episode four, wants to take what they've recently gone through and in some cases relived and move towards closure and hope for themselves in Castle Rock. They can't see far down the path to a brighter future, but they want to believe they're on it. And as countless King characters have learned, this is part of the story where reality and whatever is lurking on the other side hobbles optimism with a sledgehammer. Trying to sell Lacey's house, Molly is forced to close 
that the owner did commit suicide, but not on the prom- premises. I mean, a serial, a serial strangler died in my house, the dead zones, Frank Dodd, who slit his throat on the toilet naked except a raincoat, and I sleep like a baby, she assures the couple from out of state. And guys, I just want to let you know, um, if my voice sounds a little weird today, um, I have like a cut on my tongue, and it really sucks, and it's, it's making it difficult for me to enunciate uh, properly at times. Um, so I just wanted to, to make that noise. And I have the gain on my microphone uh, down um, farther than it usually is because there's noise in another room that I don't want you guys to, to have to listen to. So the audio quality is a little bit different today than it is uh, for, for those two reasons. Holmes goes for an unthinkable 40% less than the one zip code away, and this cheery realtor whose signs read, live like a king, is positive property values are going to shoot through the roof, which, by the way, was just reshingled last year. Melanie Linsky is the best, and Molly puts up a pretty damn good performance of her own, but the day when Castle Rock stops waving its awfulness in her face is far off. Pangborn wants to forget Lacey's suicide plea for him to play hero again. Alan already eradicated evil in the 80s and 90s with the dark half and needful things and suffered for both. He wants peace and to hold Ruth's hand through her sundowning days, living on the ground he fought for and just trying to keep this fucking fence from falling down. Instead, Henry's talking about taking Alan's love away to Texas, and the reverend whose bed he's sleeping in is having his body disinterred and brought back to town. The warden's corporate errand boy thinks his goal is especially straightforward, Threatened to feed the mute his teeth until he gives up his name. The suit finds himself literally backtracking in panic as the prisoner drones a verse from Revelation, ending with, He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The cell wall's etching don't seem especially meaningful, but that black spider web next to Skarsgård is a fun echo of Pennywise's true arachnoid state. Living more... Drawn-out setbacks this time are Zaleski and Henry, whose fractured 1991 dream opens this episode. Henry's dad calls for him again in the woods, and then he's alone in a dirt floor basement behind a chain-link fence with a Bible and a toy car. A figure descends the stairs as real-life Henry is crept up on by a shadow holding what looks to be a knife. In a town threatened by devils, he's tucked into a Looney Tune Tasmanian devil comforter. He's startled awake, and whoever was there has vanished exactly like what Molly had just experienced with Father Deaver's ghost. At the library, Henry learns of Vince Desjardins, a con who was investigated and cleared in connection with his disappearance. He visits the man's true detective-y stone house in the woods, less than a mile from where he went missing. Nobody's home, and from a kitchen with a collapsed ceiling vomiting a piano, Henry sees an old wooden box in the backyard big enough to hold a person. Busting it open with a shovel, he finds nothing but a disused bowl and a spoon inside. Desjardins' brother, Joseph, pulls up, a strangely-mannered older man who cuts hair way out here. Cool murder barbershop, Jackie Torrance might say. Small moments like the slight jauntiness that comes over this guy when he learns Henry's identity or Sissy Spacek gutting those fish are quietly weaving a deeply unsettling atmosphere. Joe leads Henry through a super hoarder second-floor labyrinth where his case file is stashed under a bed. Joe wanted to know the cops wrote after they came poking around. At the moment, some clarity might come. His eyes turn to, the, to those of a hardcore conspiracy theorist haunted by test bombs, carbon-14, and God's perfect clock. Uh, Desjardins comes back to Earth long enough to tell Henry eye-to-eye in a tone of a sincere confidant or a bullshitting hypnotist, you know I never touched you. What the hell is going on here? That box isn't where Henry remembers being trapped, although he did pass a crappy basement bulkhead outside Desjardins. We now have seen a cage hidden inside Shawshank, a moldering box in the woods, and a basement enclosure, each sort of fitting Lacey's tale of divine instruction for trapping the devil masquerading as the boy. Did multiple folks intercept the same godly broadcast? Was Henry mistaken for the devil? Or was the kid at Shawshank? Are other kids part of this? Pangborn is tired of those bitter back and forth with Henry and lets loose. He knows Henry shoved his dad to that back-breaking, almost frozen-to-death fate. He had that fucking tube down his throat, and he wrote it, uh, he wrote it out for me on a goddamn bank slip, all capital letters. Henry did it. Andre Holland is being constantly tasked with strong reactions to slightly odd or deeply personal comments, and he's handling it phenomenally. Maybe I did it, Henry tells Molly, the only person he can go to who's overheard the fight using her species of the shine. 
Her response is much for herself as it is him. Whatever happened, it wasn't your fault. You were just a kid. They sleep together. The type of early-in-the-game hookup King has favored since Salem's lot. Allen's revealed jettisons Henry's plan to stick around a full week. He's pushing his silent client to take the settlement and getting out of the rock tomorrow. Dennis Zaleski's momentum reversal is the most severe, turning fatal with Henry's choice to split. The CO has started feeling imprisoned, along with his wards now desperate to use the mute's story to expose Shawshank's violent corruption. He wants his baby to have a hero for a dad, and he spits on the town's bad luck thesis just like Lacey. Bad shit happens here because bad people know they're safe. They're safe here. How many times can one fucking town look the other way, he asks Henry. Derry, hold my beer. Zaleski's so hopped up on justice, he's sliding his hand into the mute cell to offer a fist bump and promise he'll soon see uh, that there's a whole world beyond these walls. No worries about the time the guy killed his cellmate with overnight cancer or when he projected that massacre in Zaleski's own mind or onto security TVs, which he's about to cover with smiley faces and X's. Zaleski, who almost shot a co-worker the first time Moody got into his head, Came in at the top of the hour to Tom Waits' wobbly clap hands, and he goes down with a mass shooting set to Roy Orbison's bright, lonesome crying. I was all right for a while. I could smell for a while. The ballad goes on, a perfect memo from Zaleski to the town to let him down. But I saw you last night. You held my hand so tight, and you stopped to say hello. And when Castle Rock grabs you to say hi that way, it might be your goodbye. Um, okay, uh, so that is uh, the recap um, from... Uh, from Decider, written by Zach Dion, which now allows me to get into my thoughts on Castle Rock episode four. So we begin with a flashback with an image of Henry in his bed, dreaming of events he couldn't remember for years. The best part of this is, and props to whoever decided upon this, is the choice of the childhood bedsheets, which are adorned with Looney Tune characters, Prominently, the Tasmanian Devil. Now, let's take a stroll back to 1991, shall we? Back then, Taz was all the rage. His spinning, snarling face was plastered over T-shirts, baseball caps, folders, trapper keepers. Well, he wasn't one of the characters um, from Tiny Toons. Uh, Dizzy Devil was his replacement. Um, Tiny Toons was on at that time, and it was an immensely popular show. As was the show he did happen to star in Tasmania, come to Tasmania, um, which was also on at the time. Now, between those two shows, there was a resurgence um, in the popularity of the original Looney Tunes. There was a Tasmania video game. You could not escape the Tasmanian Devil. So to see him, however briefly, on a bench sheet um, in 1991, this is 1,000% consistent with what an 11-year-old boy uh in the early 90s would have chosen to sleep in. So just, it's a great little touch that goes a long way. In his dream or memory, Henry appears to be trapped in a confined space with a dirt floor, his only company a toy car. Through a mesh cage, he sees a figure holding a flashlight walking down a set of stairs. And the flashback ends with the image of an open door, the focus on the door's knob, which, if I was to guess, was the exact same door leading to Dale Lacey's basement the one that Henry stared at in an earlier episode, that one with the big honking lock on it. It makes sense. If Dale, Henry had imprisoned, or if Dale Lacey had imprisoned one kid, who's to say he didn't imprison another one? It's important to note the location of Henry's imprisonment because it does not match the wooden box he'll later discover in the woods out Desjardins' barbershop murder den. He has a sensation of being watched, but despite his concern, he appears alone in his bedroom. Now, after the credits... We see Dennis Zaleski arriving to work, and the everyday horrors of his job are weighing heavily upon his shoulders. Noel Fisher is a perfect actor to play this part because his face strikes the right balance between boyish and bitter. It's simultaneously youthful and weary, and in between those two poles, the viewer is able to find immense empathy towards him. This is essential, considering what occurs in the conclusion of this episode. I'm going to get to that later, but that moment cannot work unless the viewer believes in his despair caused by Shawshank and Castle Rock. I've already mentioned it in previous episodes, but he's been wearing his resentment on his sleeve from his attempts to do good by calling Henry, trying to focus on his impending fatherhood from his driven, monotonous, antisocial walk to the bar. He's someone who we are watching fall into a deep trench of hopelessness before our very eyes, and we can see why he has latched on to Henry. 
It's not Henry necessarily he's latched onto, but the promise of hope that Henry brings. Through Henry, he hopes to enact change, to fight the wrongs he's witnessing on a daily basis. If he can stand against it, then he can gain strength. Unfortunately, he's put his trust in the wrong man, or rather, he's put his trust in the right man, wrong time. The irony of it all is that it appears that Henry needed Dennis's death to spur him on to fight the young CO's quest to expose the horrors of Shawshank Prison. Watching him make his way through the prison, it's soul-crushing. You just want to reach the screen and save him. Replace Shawshank with the Overlook, and the effect is similar. The place has wormed its way into him and has corrupted him. The soil of a man's heart is stonier, after all. Elsewhere in the prison, Reeves, Warden Porter's lackey, attempts to intimidate the kid with a story of the war and feeding a prisoner his own teeth. But it backfires because the kid fires back with his quiet menace with a loose reference from the book of Revelation. He has a name. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Okay. Okay. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. But when we have Stephen King characters talking about other characters who have robes dipped in blood... Uh, my spice sense starts to tingle. Now, what color is blood? What other word might you use? Do we know of any other Stephen King characters who have been known to wear clothes the color red, who might have been talked about in hushed whispers and messianic language like this? Who might have worn a red robe or a crimson robe? And should I read anything into the fact that the kid rises as he says, clothed with a robe dipped in blood? That's a powerful phrase to rise to, and the menace is palpable as he does so. So what I'm getting at here, you can argue that this is a reference to the Crimson King, a divisive character in the Stephen King mythos who was, for years, built up to be the Satan of the Stephen King multiverse. The truth to the character is much more nuanced and complex than that. If you haven't read the Dark Tower series, you should. Um, and to help you with your understanding of the final presentation of the Crimson King, you should listen to my many Dark Tower episodes in which I discuss what King, Stephen King, uh, was doing with this polarizing character. Um, regardless of how the Crimson King winds up being presented within his works, the name and the suggestion of his presence carries a hefty weight and uh, the Crimson King's actions throughout the multiverse still caused unspeakable horror and death. It's not hard to believe that one of his disciples has wound up in a prison under supernatural and mysterious circumstances. I'll talk about uh, this more in the Easter egg section, but in the meantime, the kid backs Reeves out of his cell. Knowing that the last char character who touched him wound up riddled with cancer, there's a legitimate threat when Skarsgård starts to approach him. With the opportunity to attempt to escape through his open jail cell, the kid instead grabs the door and closes it, locking himself back in, suggesting that this is exactly where he wants to be. Or you can read that it's where he feels the most comfortable, having been locked in a cage his entire life. Is he a monster or is he a victim? Can he be both? We then get Alan and Henry driving to retrieve Henry's father from the landfill he'd been moved to. Here, Henry drops the bomb that not only is he leaving back to Texas, he's going to take Ruth with him, furthering the rift between the two. Henry insinuates that Alan shipped off Henry's father's corpse because of an affair that Alan had, uh, that Alan had been having with his mother. If that's the case, that continues to reinforce that Polly Chalmers never factored into this version of Alan Pingbor's life. Alan returns home and raises the possibility of Houston to Ruth, who isn't having it. Now, we haven't seen much of Sissy Spacek yet, but in the brief scenes we've seen of her, she's demonstrated careful nuance to her character. She's not playing it big, zany, manic, crazed, weeping, or unmoored from reality. There's a quiet dignity, a stoicism, that is authentic to Maine residents. It's not just a cliché. I'm lucky enough to know aging Maine lifers, and I've always thought to myself, they're straight out of a Stephen King novel, not 
as the main characters or the colorful side characters, but the fill-in characters that our main characters bump into at a diner or a library or on the street. And despite any illness, tragedy, or concern, uh, they face every day with a weathered grace that I see Sissy Spacek embodying in this portrayal of Ruth. Simply put, I like what I'm seeing and I want to see more. At the Mellow Tiger, Henry and Molly are having a couple drinks discussing this case when they're interrupted by Dennis, who's eager to show Henry a drawing of the cage he found the kid trapped within. Here we see his vulnerability and his eagerness at the possibility of taking down Shawshank. His eagerness crashes against the rocks of Henry's pragmatism, who informs him that if he badmouths Shawshank, he'll come across, come across as a disgruntled employee, causing Dennis to fire back with, I am a fucking disgruntled employee. It's a great line, simultaneously funny and sad, and speaks to the fact that he's bearing it all for Henry and all but begging him to take up his cause. He is a disgruntled employee, just like he sees the injustice occurring on a daily basis and wants to fight it because fighting it is the right thing to do. This thought process is brushed aside from Henry, who burdens his own form of institutional weariness, having had his soul crushed little by little through the grind of one heartbreaking trial after another. This world, the show argues, whether it be Shawshank prison or an execution room, has no place for the earnest and the just. After being rejected, Dennis says something that paves the way for his ultimate fall from grace, speaking about those in town looking the other way for the bad man to hide in plain sight. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist, and the thrust of the argument paints Castle Rock in a shade closer to that of Derry. Truth be told, I'm not sure if I mentioned it much already. Um, I know Zach... Uh, sort of said something, uh, he said, hold my beer, um, in reference to, to Derry and, and the recap that I, that I just read. Um, and I don't know if I've mentioned it too much already, but the portrayal of Castle Rock in this show has borrowed a lot from what has otherwise been ascribed to Derry, which had always been a, a city rotten to the core, poisoned since prehistoric times. Castle Rock, on the other hand, had always seemed to be an otherwise normal town until the evil began to corrupt it and the town couldn't weather the blows, which kept manifesting in different ways. King insinuated that it was the same storm, really, just different gusts of wind, one gust being Frank Dodd, the next Cujo, and ultimately the final blow in the form of Leland Gaunt. Before then, the town might have experienced badness, but nothing out of the ordinary, not in the way that it's portrayed here. This isn't a criticism, just an observation. I can see why Shaw and Thomason would have made that decision. It's a sleeker, richer story that allows for more intrigue if the town itself is cursed. It's a haunted house story set within the parameters of an entire town. The cracks beginning to widen in his soul, Dennis heads to work, his head avoiding the inmate beatings and his fellow guards until he makes his way to the kid's cell. In a great shot, invoking Pennywise through the sewer grate, Bill Skarsgård face emerges from the shadows, and just like Georgie sealing his own fate by thrusting his fist into that grate, Dennis does the same, reaching his hand into the lair of the beast. Instead of reaching for a balloon, he's asking for a fist bump. Don't you want a fist bump? We all pump down here. Uh, and just like that, his fate is sealed. There's a sound design at that moment that's very reminiscent of the sound effects that David Lynch used during Twin Peaks The Return. It's a... Uh, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, an off-putting, droning hum swish, I guess. Um, but it signifies that something in the moment is occurring that we should pay attention to, even if we can't fully understand what it is. But make no mistake, the sound design conveys a sense of dread. Zaleski heads into the monitoring station, relieving the guard who continues to bother him about not smiling and his current hell is the one millions of women experience when guys tell them to smile. Here, watching the soulless grin upon Noel Fisher's face, it's horrifying, signifying the madness that's taking over within him. King often has his villains grinning, whether it be Flag, Gaunt, the man in black, Pennywise, George Stark, possessed Jack Torrance, Andre Linoge, others. Grinning represents either evil or madness, so to see this grin plastered across Dennis's face, this is a warning sign that nothing good can come of it. As he watches the monitors, 
he begins defacing each one with smiley faces, which, again, is never a good thing in Stephen King's stories. At the library, Henry goes to the microfiche, attempting to find any trace of either the prisoner, uh, prisoner or the truth about his disappearance. Whatever his intentions were for sitting down in the library, he takes the opportunity to dive into his own disappearance, coming across a lead involving a character by the name of Vince Desargen, I can never pronounce it, who happens to be one of the characters from The Body, one of the guys that ran with Ace. This also allows for a conversation with Sissy Spacek about it, who played Carrie White, who, in the book, featured a gym teacher by the name of Desjardins. 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 I did it. Um, also, in this moment, um, when Henry is talking to Ruth, I'm not sure, and I had never seen the movie, uh, Sissy Basic's classic, The Coal Miner's Daughter, but um, is the song that's playing in the background, Coal Miner's Daughter by Dolly Parton? Someone look into that for me, please. Uh, despite Henry's attempt at a conversation about his missing time, Ruth is not having it, to the point where she's waving a knife in front of her son putting her foot down about the possibility of him taking her to Texas. Meanwhile, Molly attempts to show the Lacey house, which involves a shot of balloons. Is it a shout out to it, or are balloons just balloons? You be the judge. The sequence allows for some laughs as Molly attempts to hide the tragedies of the Lacey family to the prospective buyers who are relocating from Des Moines. This cannot be a uh, one and done scene. Both uh, Mark Herolick and Lauren Bowles are recognizable enough faces to ensure that we're going to see them again. So the question is, why are they relocating from Des Moines to Castle Rock? And if he is a historian, what aspects of the town's history are drawing him to it? How is he going to play into this as we start to head into the second half of this show? Now, I mentioned David Lynch earlier. We get another David Lynch-inspired moment in a sequence that pulls a lot of the signature Lynchian dread tinged with surreal weirdness in which you feel powerless, beginning with effective sound design and an overhead shot of the trees. From there, as the uh, music continues to lay the groundwork for the building unease, Henry explores the Desjardins house, ultimately finding a wooden box in the back where he thinks he might have been kept as a child. This leads to the moment in which Vince's brother arrives on the scene, played by Dark Shadows' David Selby, who comes barreling in with friendly, unsettling lunacy that pulls you in with the gravitational pull of a black hole. Despite the overwhelming sense of danger radiating off of the land, the house, and the man who owns it, Henry even sits down, placing himself in a vulnerable position, which reinforces the viewer's response to the pull of this man's off-putting charm. Well, it's not an Easter egg. The scene feels very similar to those of us who have read It. You might have conjured the image of Mrs. Kirsch drinking tea. Similarly, in that sequence, Bev entered a house and quickly found herself in immense danger facing off against an elderly threat. Similarly, in a sequence in the Dark Tower series, our characters find themselves in the home of an elderly character who appears to be kind, but radiates a malign, parasitic danger. This scene is fantastic. From the striking image of the crashed piano through the ceiling, the barber pole out front, the reveal that this place is used as a barber shop, which brings about a whole slew of questions, most notably, who the fuck is getting their hair cut out there? The dual MVPs of this scene are David Selby and whoever was in charge of the music. The combination creates a dangerous, unsettling aura. The camera follows Henry and the old man in an effective sequence in which we take the perspective of Henry following him, watching him duck around corners, each time ratcheting up the tension. The camera lingers on the empty space ahead of him. Out of sight, the unpredictability of the rural barber grows. Is he crouched around the corner waiting to pounce? Is he rushing to find a weapon? The danger of the unknown lurks in every shadow, every nook and cranny of this house, and every box or knick-knack hoarded by its imbalanced owner. The camera presents a feast for the viewer to gorge on as it sweeps through the house, and you are thrust in Henry's shoes. You know that it's wrong to linger, to soak it all up, but you need to see more. Even though you suspect the owner is at best unwell, at worst a child kidnapper, the same one that kidnapped you for 11 unaccounted for days. 
The psychological effect that this must have on Henry places him in an incredibly vulnerable state, creating one of the two most potent segments from this episode, which rank among the two most effective sequences that I've experienced this year on television. I was fucking glued to the screen. It was throwing off major Twin Peaks vibes and True Detective vibes, and I was so happy that Castle Rock was conjuring these titanic viewing experiences for me. The sequence concludes with uh, Desjardin stating, you know I never touched you, which insinuates that he had something to do with the disappearance. And what a great cliffhanger. The scene ends and segues the retrieval of his father's casket, which is accompanied by a piano score not dissimilar to Laura's theme from Twin Peaks, a show which, among many things, also featured a prominent scene involving a casket. By the way, if you couldn't tell, I'm a big fan of Twin Peaks, and if you want more of my thoughts on Twin Peaks, you can listen to my other podcast, Hanging with Agent Cooper. Henry, shook from his meeting, heads back home and confronts Alan, believing that he, the former sheriff, hadn't done his job thoroughly investigating the man Henry believes had abducted him. And Alan has finally had enough, shedding some light on the mystery of our characters that the late pastor had accused Henry of causing his injuries so that this gives us insight into the frustration that Alan has been feeling and the source of the bitterness that has seemed to, to some capacity, sour him throughout the years. He had knowingly turned a blind eye to justice in order to protect Henry, who he believed was responsible for the death of the town's pastor, and in doing so, by turning his back to duty as the lawman, compromised his ethics, much like Lacey compromising his position by locking up a child in a prison and Zaleski compromising his duty by murdering the innocent um, guards that he works with. This is another example of the weight of responsibility that is thrust on those in the hero role, which is ominous for Henry, our show's hero. Unless he learns from those around him, he's going to be doomed to fall prey to the same fates of those who preceded him. Henry, having nowhere to go, heads to Molly, who is ready for him, and lets him in. Here's what I believe should be a big moment. We have seen the edges of her obsession of him, but we haven't really seen his perspective on how he has felt about her. Now, I'm all for these two getting intimate, and I understand why this moment happens, because he's vulnerable, and he's in need of comfort, and she can fulfill that role. But because we haven't spent enough time with either of them, about the two of them, it feels way too soon to elicit any emotion about it. Ominously enough, the scene segues to the sound of thunder, and Molly finds herself staring into the mirror of her bathroom, where Frank Dodd had killed himself, while Henry lays in her bed. A storm begins to gather above Castle Rock, the reverberations of the thunder rumbling through the town and its citizens, from our two childhood friends to Ruth, who witnesses the return of her deceased husband's coffin, and Henry places a phone call to Dennis letting him know that he'll be leaving, meaning that the kid will take the settlement. Again, I have to talk about the use of sound. Maybe I hadn't noticed it in previous episodes, or maybe there was more attention to it in this episode. Maybe there was some someone different at the helm. I'm not sure, but I know all I know is that there is an undercurrent of dread invoking the rolling thunder outside, and when Dennis hangs up on Henry's voicemail, that thrum ceases. It's a truly chilling moment. The dread-filled tone that had been building is suddenly cut, and its absence is somehow so much worse, as we're about to see. It's an incredible precursor to an incredible conclusion to an incredible episode of television. Back in his monitoring room, Zaleski looks once more at the video screens. And then, and then, and then one of my favorite drum beats filled my speakers, and I tensed in both joy and concern as I knew that the arrival of Roy Orbison was signaling a tragedy that was about to occur. What I couldn't have guessed was just how deep that tragedy would run. I can't put into words just how effective the conclusion to this episode is. My wife and I just watched in rapt silence at what occurred, and when it was done, we just stared at each other. After the initial emotion subsided, she said, it's amazing what happens when you just add Roy Orbison to it. And it's true. I'm not saying that the scene wouldn't have worked if you hadn't included crying, 
but the combination of watching Zaleski's murder spree set against Orbison's classic ballad was a potent pairing that established the sequence as one of the most impactful television experiences of 2018, if not of all time. I'm confident enough with putting it on that list, and why not? It carried with it the established characterization of a good man slowly drowning under the daily sludge of reality. It recontextualized what we had believed had been a hallucination that Zaleski had suffered when he witnessed the dead bodies on the video screens. Only now do we truly understand the significance of what he saw in the final moments of episode one. He saw his own rampage carried out before it happened. As this all occurred, my brain tried making sense of what it was seeing, watching this good man fall from grace, mechanically slaughtering his co-workers impersonally through the buffer of the video monitors that had driven him to madness. Somehow the objectivity and lack of dramatics on the screen within the screen makes the violence and horror stand out that much more. And not knowing which screen he's going to enter next creates a terrifying tension which generated unbearable anxiety and helped map the labyrinthine complexity to the geography of this building. This is a truly heartbreaking, haunting, edge-of-your-seat, incredibly well-choreographed moment of television that is Emmy-worthy. I was all right for a while, the song begins narrating the mental state of Zaleski himself as he watched the images that have been corrupting him of everyday evil tearing apart his soul piece by piece. I could smile for a while, referencing the fact that he hadn't been smiling as pointed out to him by his co-worker and describing his loss of soul. But I saw you last night. You held my hand so tight as you stopped to say hello. As the camera focuses on, on Henry who he had seen and had, like the woman in Roy's song, filled Zaleski with emotion and hope. You wished me well, you couldn't tell that I had been crying over you. Then cuts to the kid in his cell as Roy sings, Then you, said so long, left me standing all alone, alone and crying. This is exactly what Dennis is going to do. Leave the kid all alone. The only friend this character um, has had... Um, has been corrupted um, by who the kid is and forces the kid to be by himself, locked in a box, alone. And it's here when the gun is revealed. And when I saw Zaleski pull it out, my, gun, my gut sank. I thought he was just going to commit suicide. I didn't know that he was going to go on a murder spree, unknowingly recreating the sequences that he witnessed in the first episode. It's hard to understand Orbison sings as Zaleski leaves the monitoring station, verbalizing his state of mind for what he's about to do next. But the following lyric possibly gives us the reason why Zaleski is going to do what he's about to do. But the touch of your hand, he sings, can start me crying. After all, what did we see? Um, but the touch of the kid's hand and what it can do. And we are witnesses uh, what it can do at this very moment. I thought that I was over you, but it's true, so true. I love you even more than I did before, so darling, what can I do? For you don't love me, and I'll always be crying over you. And the camera pans back to Henry, who the song is dedicated to. It's not that Henry doesn't love Zaleski, but the love that Roy is referring to speaks of justice and the hope that Henry had instilled within Zaleski. The camera pushes through the monitor until we are back in the moment where Henry comes face to face with Zaleski, whose final words are sadly, I want to testify, before the flash bomb goes off, which couldn't be a better visual symbol for what had just occurred, and our good-hearted boy hero turned villain is shot to death. Like another Castle Rock character, he had been infected with a disease that was beyond him, causing him to act out in rage and has put out his misery before he can inflict any more damage all the while not understanding what he did wrong. Like Cujo, he thought he'd been a good boy. I want to talk. Um, I just want to just state that, you know, I, I have talked about Zaleski having been, you know, a good man who had been corrupted and, you know, how sad the sequence is to watch. I mean, by no means am, am I trying to present this in a way in which the gun violence isn't anything other than just awful. I mean, we live in a world where this is a reality, and to see it 
presented so objectively on the television screen uh, in front of us, it is truly, truly haunting. And uh, it really speaks to the day and age that we live in, where this is a horror that many people have to fear. Um, and it doesn't matter where. You know, I mean, all the attention right now is on the schools, but it honestly doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's, I mean, if we lock down the schools, protect the schools, put all our efforts into the schools, I mean, we still have to worry about parades. We have to worry about malls. We have to worry about movie theaters. We have to worry about uh, football games and baseball games. We have to worry about just walking down the street. Uh, We have to worry about the 4th of July. We have to worry about going to the beach. You know, there's no escaping it, um, as we can see here from Shawshank. It's a horrible reality that we are faced with. And... uh, Shaw and Thomason captured that horror, which is more frightening than any supernatural element that we'll ever see in a Stephen King novel. So I just want to conclude, um, but we need to talk about boxes. The title of the the episode um, is The Box, and boxes pop up all throughout this episode, almost right away from the fragmented memory of Henry peering through the boxed cage that he had resided in for 11 days, possibly. We get boxes from the prison cell, and the monitoring station that Zaleski places himself in. We got boxes in the form of caskets, both the casket of Henry's father and the casket of Henry's mother that she refers to. We get boxes in the form of the wooden crate outside the Desjardins house, and the boxes underneath his bed containing the files from Henry's father's murder. Alan is even repairing a fence, which is basically a box around a house, The gun that Zaleski uses to kill everyone in his path is held in a box, and the way in which we observe his path of destruction is provided to us through one monitor box after another. So let's talk about Easter eggs, first of which is the Crimson King, like I had mentioned earlier, with the uh, clothing dipped in blood. Now, I had, for years on the Stephen King cast, talked about my dream of the further adventures of Alan Pangborn, you know, and uh, Shaw and Thomason are, are are doing just that. They're making that dream come true, and I wonder if they are giving me another dream come true with the origin of Walter Paddock. Spoiler alert for the Dark Tower, specifically the Dark Tower Book Seven, the Dark Tower, uh, but the Man in Black. Walter O'Dim, Martin Broadcloak, Randall Flagg, um, ultimately is revealed to be named Walter Paddock. And as he goes out in a truly pathetic way uh, that I believe is truly fitting for his character, it spoke of, you know, he had set out to, like, master dark arts, basically, and on his travels he is, um, he is raped um, and there's a lot to be said about that, that it's just left open for interpretation. We don't need to know, but it kind of implies that he was vulnerable at one point, and he has masked his vulnerability with a false bravado that ultimately does his in, that does him in. Are we seeing some, like, could the kid be a, a, a an early incarnation of the man in black? Um, you know, who we don't need Flag to have grown up in in uh, midworld after the world has moved on. I mean, he hops throughout the multiverse. He seems unmoored from any sort of uh, you know plan or uh, one particular reality. So who's to say that he didn't in his early years find himself in Castle Rock, Maine? Um, after all, there's a lot of supernatural activity that's been happening in Castle Rock, Maine. So for him to find himself here, maybe he came through a thinny. Maybe he just kind of got caught here for a while and will move on to um, another multiverse or another dimension or another level of the tower on his journey of you know, amassing power and uh, learning dark knowledge. You know, maybe this is a, a Randall flag in his more formative years. And it would be really cool to see that. And it would be even cooler to know that Shaw and Thomason casted 
Bill Skarsgård, who was playing the other iconic Stephen King villain uh, on the big screen. So I don't know. I mean, we are going to probably get our answer who uh, the kid is. But in the meantime, the reference to the Crimson King and knowing that uh, that the man in black was the uh, prime minister, basically, to the, the Crimson King, that is, it makes you wonder. We also have the Reaper's image, um, which was a short story by Stephen King, and uh, the Reaper is scrawled on the kid's cell. Um, like I said earlier, Bill Skarsgård slash sewer grate slash hand reaching into his lair. Dennis does this exactly like Georgie had done in It. Number four is smiley faces. Smiley faces um, are often used uh, by the villains of Stephen King. We see this from George Stark, Randall Flagg, Brady Hartsfield. Number five, balloons. I mentioned this earlier. When we see balloons, is this a reference to It? Number six is Frank Dodd. The strangler that Molly references is Frank Dodd from the Dead Zone. Uh, Desjardins' name um, was seen as early back in Carrie, which again, that to have uh, Sissy Spacek utter that name, even though she didn't use that name in... Sorry, guys. Sorry about that. Even though she didn't use that name in the movie, they changed the name of that character. In the book, the character's name was Desjardins. Um, and the, the, the same last name also popped up in uh, The Body. And then lastly, we have Brothers and Evil. Uh, though the surviving LeBay brother wasn't necessarily evil, the fact that we have one surviving brother detailing the life of the deceased and the suspected evil brother feels very in line with the Bay family from Christine. And then we have one Stephen Kingism, an elderly character radiating, radiating menace uh, from his or her home, which we had seen with Mrs. Kirsch and Dandelo. So that's it, guys. That's all that I got for this episode. This episode, it's um, watching this, it kind of, I felt like I was living out that Leonardo DiCaprio uh, Django Unchained meme where, you know, he says, you had my... You had my interest, but now you have my attention. Is that is that what he says? But that's how I had felt about Castle Rock. I had liked it. I had been enjoying it. Um, but this episode truly elevated it to that next level. There was a mastery of craft at work here um, that, like I said, it, we, we dipped into True Detective and Twin Peaks waters and, and established a conclusion that is going to stay with me for a very, very long time. That was a potent, powerful um, moment of television that I hope is uh, not necessarily rewarded because I, 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 that would be great, um, you know, if it did, if, if it did win an Emmy. But just if it is one of those scenes that pops up on lists uh, from years to come. So this made me. So upset that I had to wait an entire week for episode five to come out. And uh, I cannot wait for the fallout of, of this, um, this, this action as we head into the, the second half of this season. So um, I can't wait. I am so hooked on this show. I am so excited. And from what I've heard, uh, there are some really good episodes uh, coming down the pike. Um, so if people are saying that when we have had this already, then uh, it means that Castle Rock's the real deal, guys. I'm very, very excited to report on it each and every week. So thank you for, for sticking around this past hour. And uh, like I said, a lot of this I had spoken of Twin Peaks. So if you are a fan of Twin Peaks um, or you like this episode and you never watched Twin Peaks, then check out Twin Peaks because... There's a Venn diagram of what you liked in this episode and what you will like in Twin Peaks, and you'll meet in the middle. Um, and then you can always check out all my thoughts on Twin Peaks The Return, uh, on Hanging with Agent Cooper, and uh, maybe you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. Oh,